Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome back to the Pilot Boys Podcast and today's uh, deep dive, we will be welcoming back for the second time uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Yojana Viramasaneni, uh, also known as Dr. V, um, mm-hmm. the more educated version of me. <laughs> <laughs> she is a clinical psychologist based in Chicago with psychiatric and uh, psycho- <laughs> psychology specialists. Um, and we welcome her back because we had an episode a couple of weeks ago about the mental health treadmill. Um, mm-hmm. In our post-dialogue, Partha and I said, hey, you know, instead of having us two talking heads uh, talking about this, let's bring on a specialist and see if we can uh, we can dig a little bit deeper. So definitely want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. So we can kick it off. You, you heard the episode, I think, um, kind of first and foremost, just to get um, your context, your background, kind of the patients you treat. Can you share a little bit about how you got into the profession? What made you passionate about it? And what kind of, you know, what kind of cases do you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've been in the mental health fields for 22 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, initially trained as a clinical social worker and then decided I wanted to keep going to school and, and became a clinical psychologist and did my doctorate. Um, and what I find most engaging and I'm passionate about is psychotherapy and um, conducting more what depth-oriented psychotherapies rather than just kind of uh, purely symptom reduction, but more exploratory psychotherapies that are about understanding um, really deep diving, right, into what is going on with someone, what has constructed the way they see the world and experience the world. and. Um, Yeah, I've been doing it for a while. The majority of folks that I see are working professionals. Um, I work with a a lot of women of color in particular who are kind of balancing what it's like to manage bicultural spaces, biracial spaces, whatever the kind of in-between spaces that they are um, navigating, um, struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, uh, struggling with trauma at various points in their lives and walking with them through a journey and bringing um, my experience and expertise. I love that. So we've, you know, we've entered this era where I think people are a lot more open with what they're going through. I think it's a super good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Feel, uh, you know, kind of just to jump into it. Do you feel like the level of openness that we've created in terms of mental health dialogue maybe Mm -hmm. allows for, just like WebMD did with everybody thinking they had cancer when they had a cold, um, does it allow for you know a great amount of um, uh, what was the word you used earlier, V? When you think you're sick, I, I, it's hypochondriac. Uh, <laughs> does it lead to a lot of people who think that they're a lot more mm-hmm. than they are? Like, do you mm-hmm. experience that in the profession, and do you see that across society? Yeah. So I. I probably see people who are uh, very much um, kind of 
not talking about everything that's going on and in fact minimizing. Um, by the time they get to me, I think, and they've decided they wanted to engage in psychotherapy, they, most folks have lived through quite a bit mm. and they've survived and they've managed to cope the best that they possibly can. And they're just, they minimize <laughs> in an extreme way. Mm. Now, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I listened to you guys um, a couple weeks ago where it feels like uh, some sort of portal is opened and everyone is walking through it. And if you're on TikTok, on social media, it, it's people are talking about mental health and, and, and um, psychotherapy and medications, like very openly in a way that I, even I find shocking. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I don't know what happened, that some, something got lifted and the stigma feels like it has been removed I, I would say especially for people who are like under 50 yeah. maybe even under 40 like to talk about mental health um is is not like a life sentence where you're going to have some mark on you forever that will exclude you in some ways and so um so i i don't know i i and this is probably an answer i'm going to give to everything today is i see um a push and pull i see a spectrum um, that on one hand, there are so many people who are minimizing what's actually going on. And on the other hand, there are people who are talking about anything and everything without a sense of boundaries around any of it. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's what I would call it more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. And that makes, that makes sense. I think, you know, obviously there's, when, when things change, progress is great and there are challenges that come with progress. I feel like we are finally starting to make some progress um, overall on the macro level in terms of um, right. just the conversation around mental health. Now, how how much that conversation is pushing the efficacy of how we treat met mental health, um, mm -hmm. you know, that remains in question, especially in a society like ours, in which there are so many different kind of players playing in every single field that we're in, right? There's the challenge that you have as as mm -hmm. a therapist treating your patients, then having you know, you know the the pharmaceutical industry also playing a role in this and treating patients and mm -hmm. and and developing drugs, um, and then also just you know there's there's family you know family issues and cultural issues. There are so many different players in this space. One of the challenges I think with specifically how open the dialogue has gotten on social media. And one of the things we talked about is just like how much just the idea, how can comfortable everyone has gotten with the medication aspect of this, right? Mm -hmm. The overprescription of, of drugs without understanding the therapy is the core part. The drugs come when it's, it's, it's actually based on a, a, a psychological mental, um, issue that I think some people are taking for granted or are marginalizing. And I think there is also an incentive for pharmaceutical industry to have more people using their drugs than not using their drugs. So how do you deal with those challenges and how do you think mm -hmm. um, that's kind of affecting treatment overall um, in this field? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, that is like massive big topic right on so many levels yeah. um where do we start uh 
and I'm giving you my perspective. For sure. That in mind. Um, You know, medications are one tool, right, in what should be ideally a toolbox that people are utilizing and tapping into. And every clinician that you talk to is going to have their own very specific take on this topic. So um, there are some people who are on one end of the extreme who um, are very anti-medication because of all of the things that you just laid out, kind of the um, incredibly un, you know, unethical practices of the, the pharmaceutical industry and, and the way in which a, a capitalist mentality has really, a market-driven mentality has driven um, the use of those meds, right? And, and the mm-hmm. business part of the whole treatment aspect. Um, and then... And then they're on the other end of the spectrum. There are people who <laughs> just want to give you a medication for anything and everything, right? And in yeah. the sense of wanting to medicate away any experience of distress whatsoever, right? Yeah. Um, which is like not good <laughs> at all because part of this being human is about learning and figuring out what is your distress about. Um, what is this pain about? Um, and learning to, on one level, deal with the pain, learning to tolerate what distress is and, and continue to live with it because there's no living without pain, right? Um, it's just about what's the threshold of pain that any one person can tolerate. Um, and, and we can talk more about that. I could definitely talk to you a lot more about that. And then somewhere in between is probably the majority of what I would consider most mental health clinicians, which is where I land, um, which is a all hands on deck kind of mentality. Everything is not right for everyone, right? And so what is important is that we take the time to not be in this quick fix mentality and really figure out what's going on for each one, each person and what each person needs. Some people, I mean, I think everybody needs therapy and that everyone should do therapy. Um, Does everyone benefit from therapy? No, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't. Some people aren't in a place where they can use therapy, right? Mm -hmm. For whatever reasons. Um, And then in conjunction with medication at various stages and points, it's incredibly helpful, right? And then there are certain conditions where uh, you know, it, it, it matters in terms of quality of life um, where, you know, you can't really be functioning if you're having psychotic symptoms. Um, yep. You can't really be functioning if you're in the middle of a manic episode and you are um, really engaging in self, self-destructive behaviors. If you are so profoundly distressed and depressed that you are in a space of suicidal um thinking about how to suicide. I mean, these are not, these are things where interventions have to happen at a a much higher level with a a team of people, ideally. Mm. So, so, um, so maybe I'll just wrap up an answer to that question to say, I don't think we should pit anybody against anyone. I think that we have to be critical in the way that we're thinking about all of this stuff. And like so much of what the both of you had talked about previously, which is what what are the, what are the motivations of a pharmaceutical industry? You know, what are the motivations of, um, you know, family physicians who have 
very little training in mental health, being able to prescribe psychiatric medications, and then just wanting people to come back every month so they can get that billing. What, you know, like it's really important to think about what everything very critically and to, and to engage with someone that you think, it, it, that you trust as, as your guide through the mental health field. Yeah. You look at, um, when you look at that kind of the, the line for, I guess, medication versus just pure therapy, um, mm -hmm. is you mentioned that for some people, therapy doesn't work. I, I would guess that's probably just their ability to open up on their own and, and create the change internally on their own versus having it assisted. Um, is there like, is there like a line of demarcation there in terms of say, like if somebody's unable to kind of get, get to, I think we've all experienced this. It's like when you're, when you're in a negative loop, it's really hard to get out of the negative loop. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So is there kind of like that line where somebody's actions and habits continue to take them into a darker place where you see, okay, there's some sort of outside stimulus needed to, to hit a reset where I can rebuild this properly. Is that kind of how you approach that? Or like, how, how are you, how are you taught mm -hmm. profession to think about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so again, I don't know if there's, and this is the really complicated thing about the mental health field is that it's so interdisciplinary. And so you have on one end uh, medical doctors who are trained as psychiatrists and, and take a very medical model approach to mental health issues. And then on the other end, you might have people who are not trained in a medical model at all and think in a very kind of existential, humanistic, philosophical way about, about these issues. And so they're going to come at this very differently. Right. Um, you know, the, the way that I think about it is that you know, you talked about orthopedics earlier. Um, and a metaphor that I often use is this idea that um, if you break a bone, right, you need to go to a doctor who knows how to reset that bone, yeah. right? You need to get immediate attention <laughs> and get that addressed. But if you want to heal and you want it to be reset right, you need to go to PT, right? right? You, you need to get strong again. And in fact, come back even stronger than you were before so you don't get injured in that way again. That's mm -hmm. what psychotherapy is, right? Yeah. Psychotherapy is the slow process, but it's the one that's going to give you the real kind of recovery that I think most people are looking for. Um, medications are going to give you a, a more rapid result um, in some ways, but they're not gonna make anything go away, right? Like at the end of the day, there's behavior change involved, there's cognitive, uh, you know, what thing your thinking has to change, right? Um, your relationship to how you manage and regulate your emotions has to change. And those are, those are not things that medications can do anything about and for in a sustained long-term kind of way. Can medications help you if you are having a psychotic episode? Absolutely. Right? Can medications help you if you're in a manic space? Yes. If you're profoundly depressed? Yes. Absolutely. Um, so I think like when people are in an extreme position, it's really necessary at times. It also clears the space sometimes when someone is, is, is very carrying what I would call a high symptom load. The therapy can't do anything until yeah. some, somebody, you know, in the sense that the symptoms have to come down so the therapy can actually be effective. Right. Sometimes you can't it just rehab. gets in the way. You can't do rehab unless the bone is healed. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
that 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 adds a lot of color to the conversation. Um, and you know, just as a, as a follow up to the medication question, I think mm-hmm. specifically you have kind of you know specifically in in many minority cultures, kind of a taboo around the idea of even being put on medication mm-hmm. for some of these illnesses. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have the other side of the spectrum that I think is developing from the marketing and the capitalism side of this, which is people who now, because they're being advertised to on TV, on TikTok, on Instagram, kind of feeling and, and, and going to doctors and saying, hey, I need this, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not they need it, what type of kind of challenge does that create um, in this field for you when you do kind of have your kind of role as a professional to guide your patient being impacted by external factors that mm-hmm. you know are not based completely in science or not based in, mm-hmm. in education, that's simply based on marketing and what they see or what mm-hmm. someone else tells them. And also in some certain cases, you're seeing this a lot with kind of parents now, they think that that can be a fix for their inability to parent their child's children correctly, which is, oh, they need to be put on medication. Oh, they need, they need therapy, which is sometimes just a case of you're not very, you're not parenting your kid very well. And they're Mm -hmm. reacting to that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, that's a can of worms, right? In the sense that um, they're, I mean, I think if you talk to any child person, child clinician who works with kids, um, most most people who work with children come from what we call a family systems approach, which is let's think about the system that the child is embedded within and how that system is affecting that child developmentally. And almost always, very rarely is it not, in my 22 years that I've seen, um, it's a parenting issue, right? It's, 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 an, it's parents who don't know what to do, how to do it, and so they just want a quick fix and they want their kid to be the issue rather than how they're parenting or what's going on in the relationship. So um, yeah, that, that happens every once in a while. I do see people who um, come in and say things like, um, you know, they're, they're already like super high achieving, but they want, and they're very maybe obsessive (laughs) and, and just are running themselves ragged and, and they think they need to do more and that the answer is some medication or some trick or mind game that's going to help them be even more obsessive and accomplished. And it's like, mm, that's not like, I'm not here to help you do more of the things that aren't helping you and, and are actually pretty dysfunctional. Um, that happens a lot with, with professional folks who don't really want to um, pause and, and really explore, like, is that the right choice? Is that really getting you what you want? Are, are the choices that you're making aligned with your values? Do you even know what your values are? Do you, do you even know who you are? Do you know what's important to you? Um, so it's about really very carefully parsing that out with someone and, um, and then saying, like, I can't help you when it's something that I, that, that's not really, that's not, I don't think that's what the issue is here. And I think that's what a lot of clinicians don't do. Mm-hmm. Is they kind of just like, all right, that's what you want. Fine, here, I'll give it to you. Or here's a script. Or this person is, you know, they, they, 
and in some ways you want to meet people where they are, but in other ways, you, I think we, we as clinicians need to be um, more direct about what it is we can actually do and what it is we actually can offer and what our area of expertise and training is around um, rather than kind of, um, you know, yeah, everything goes, right? That's, that's yeah. a really great answer. Um, in kind of the flip side of things, you have the, the you know, difficulty of having the acceptance in minority families as be mentioned but then mm-hmm. you have this mm-hmm. other side of culture these days where I, I i went um i remember in college i think everyone in my study group except me was on adderall and you know i work in entrepreneurship every founder i meet more or less is on adderall and i look on tiktok and i'm getting advertised these ads where you know mm-hmm. i I can go get a quick telemedicine consult on an app and then they'll prescribe me Adderall so I can focus. And then the, the you know symptoms they're describing are just the symptoms of having used TikTok a lot, which is how it's conditioning your brain, right? So when you look at the system set up in society around some of these illnesses, I think I would consider depression, anxiety in this box as well. Mm-hmm. Self-inquiting dialogue there and system around it that monetizes that. What... It, are people really getting that unhealthy or are we just building machines that train certain thought patterns and then medicating to solve against those thought patterns? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both <laughs> is my answer. Okay. Um, yeah. Like, so that ADHD, ADHD issue, I think is, um, I, I am, I don't believe in all of that stuff that's going on right now where you can go in and talk to a doctor who is not trained in, in mental health, is not trained in treating ADHD, um, never sends a, a, a client to go get fully tested, like psychological evaluation. And again, I'm a psychologist, so, so I know I'm pretty biased around this. Like you need to get a full neuropsychological evaluation right, in order to qualify for an ADHD diagnosis. An ADHD diagnosis is a, um, it's basically saying that you have a neurological condition, that there's something going on with you in the way that your brain is processing that's impaired, right? right? I mean, that's what mm-hmm. that diagnosis means. And right. so, yeah. y- y- so many people get on these meds because they go on WebMD and look up the symptoms and then they go in and they tell the prescriber, um, I've got these symptoms. And the prescriber's like, okay, yeah, those are the symptoms. You've got ADHD. <laughs> it, it's mind-boggling. It's yeah. so wrong. It's so profoundly problematic on, on so many levels. What what really needs to happen, What what I think the correct and proper way to do this is you get thoroughly, thoroughly, fully, fully assessed in a comprehensive way about what are these symptoms. Because that's what's complicated about mental health is it's not concrete. You can't look at something and measure it and say this is what it is in in the way maybe that you can with a lot of other medical fields and a lot of other sciences. So much of this is based on subjective reports subjective experience. How do you measure one person's subjective experience compared to another person's subjective experience in a way that fits into our understanding of science and research and all of that? That, you know, that's really complicated in and of itself. And so, sorry, I'm going off 
because you you opened up one of my favorite things to go yes. off on. Um, in, an, in an ideal world, someone needs to go get thoroughly assessed and figure out what's going on because so many symptoms overlap in mental health. What looks like ADHD can also look like untreated chronic depression over time. What looks like ADHD is uh, masquerading as ADHD is actually anxiety that has not been addressed. And the person has like zero coping methods. And so they are kind of this fragmented ball of nerves that can't focus on anything because they are so dysregulated and in a state of like constant hyper arousal mentally and physically and biologically. What often what I see is what looks like ADHD is actually a trauma response, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's untreated and it's, and what, what someone looks like after decades of other underlying things not getting treated shows up like they can't focus on anything. They can't stick with anything for the longer than five minutes. They have a hard time with long-term planning. They um, can't really organize themselves. They can't put structure and routine into their daily lives, right? That, that's what people who have ADHD look like. That's also what people with depression look like, with anxiety look like, with trauma look like, right? Yeah. Um, and so what you really need to do is also get into a really comprehensive evaluation that's going to measure what is this person's memory capacities? You know, what is their working memory speed compared to everyone else in the population or their age group? What is this person's um, ability to recall long-term and short-term, right? What is their visual memory versus their ver verbal memory, right? What is their ability to process information look like? Can they process verbal information, but maybe they can't process visual? Are they able to process numbers? But, you know, like you, you, you have to really look at that stuff and figure out, is this a learning issue? And, and real ADHD is a learning issue, right? It's right. a learning disability in the sense that the way that your body, the way that your mind and brain take in information is um, something about it is stuck somewhere, yeah. either in terms of how it takes it in, how it holds it, how it processes it, how it then stores it, how it retrieves it, and then how we can then communicate that. That process can go off at any of those points, right? And if you're doing a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation, you could figure that out, right? And yes, that is very much helped by medication. Right, it is, and it can be, but does everybody have that issue? No, right, and that's what's yeah. not happening, because insurance yeah. companies, number one, they're they're just they're the problem. They won't pay for comprehensive neuropsych evaluations, mm -hmm. but they will pay for a quick and dirty, um, you know, medication evaluation when you go to a PCP's office, right? And so it's that's also part of the issue, right? Is is there are so many barriers to, to getting good treatment, comprehensive treatment. You, you kind of answered what my follow-up question mm -hmm. was going to be, but I want to dig a little bit deeper there on kind of the theme of, of your answer, which is that enough psychological evaluations don't seem to be getting done, um, not specifically, specifically in these situations, but also generally I view in society. There are a lot of high-stress fields, there are, there are a lot of fields in which um, your psych mental health can be degraded just by virtue of your career or what you do um, yep. 
for yes. for a living. Um, and also, obviously, the big one is in 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 your ability to own and handle dangerous weapons as well. It just doesn't seem like the idea of like mandatory psych evaluations in these fields, it could be very helpful in creating a healthier kind of environment in society. But why do you think, you, you mentioned it, insurance companies don't pay, but why do you think that is? Why do you think we're so resistant to the idea of psychological evaluations on a regular basis for people? Mm -hmm. Do you mean particularly in the work setting or do you mean kind of both in the work, obviously uh -huh. in the work work setting um, as well, mainly in the work setting, mm -hmm. right? People are going through, especially adults, a lot of their, a lot of stressors are happening as a result of what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not being treated or aggressive. Oh, it's just work stress. It's just work stress. Mm -hmm. But, and, and oftentimes, and we're also seeing the dangerous effects also not just workplace but in school like an untreated yes. child comes and shoots up the school that is a result of an underlying mental illness being allowed to build up without being treated without being evaluated mm -hmm. properly um, but it seems like a lot of these situations could be addressed mm -hmm. by simply embracing the idea of a psych evaluation the mm -hmm. same way that we embrace a yearly physical mm -hmm. wouldn't that be amazing if that is something that could happen. Um, it would be, it would be great. I think part of the complications is around privacy um, and stigma, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for so long, there's been so much stigma around this that people felt like it would be more harmful for others to learn about someone's mental health struggle, struggles than actually getting the help that they need. Um, I think it's cost it's prohibitive, right? Um, if schools were really to pay for the amount of mental health clinicians that we we really need, you'd have as many um, social workers in schools as you would teachers, right? Yeah. Um, that's not going to happen ever because yeah. we already don't have enough teachers and don't pay them well. Um, if we actually our college campuses actually had enough uh, college counseling centers that actually staffed enough clinicians so that people could see um, psychotherapists that, you know, that means you'd have to redirect your funding to actually get yeah. these things taken care of. Um, insurance companies don't want to pay for it. I mean, we didn't even have mental health parity where you didn't have to have um, companies weren't required to out give their um, employees plans where they could, their mental health was covered at the same level of coverage as their um, medical benefits. So for a very long time, there would be a like um, a, a deductible on your mental health services, but not on your medical services, right? Which is total garbage. And so there are things that are happening like very slowly that are getting better. Um, but it's still, I think so much of it is, is barriers. Um, cost barriers, access barriers, um, and I think the social stigma barrier is coming down, but it's still there. Um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question fully, but you did. You gave okay. me a good answer. Yeah. So when you think about um, you know the the individual person out there, if they want to you know find a way to assess their own mental health. Mm -hmm. what is, what's the best way to approach that? Mm -hmm. 
in terms of like what kind of questions one could ask or even how do you how do you find the right kind of medical professional to talk to there's so many mm-hmm. so much nuance in mm-hmm. even the different titles amongst mental health professionals how do mm-hmm. you know if the person you're talking to is going to align with you philosophically and the type right. of treatment you're looking for mm-hmm. um, how do you even approach that yeah yeah so what i always tell people is you need to shop around right? People feel like they just go to the first person who had an opening that they could get into. And then they're like, see, they just stay with that person, right? Um, Or they're in my network. And so my insurance covers them, which is like the worst way to pick a psychotherapist because that's problematic on so many levels because the people who are in insurance panels are folks who are just graduated <laughs> and so need to build caseloads. And so they have very, they don't have as much experience typically. Um, the really, really good, like people who have tons and tons of experience um, are often expensive and it's hard to get in to see them. Where's a good place to start? Um, you know, if you, If you go to psychology today and and begin to look and read profiles about what is this person's level of training, right? Are they trained at a master's level? Are they trained at a doctoral level? That's one place to start. What is their orientation? Their theoretical orientation is what we call it. Are they um, more about focusing on behaviors? Are they more about um, what I would call a depth-oriented approach? Are they integrative, where they use a variety of perspectives? Um, Are they solo, or are they part of a group where if I needed to, I would also be able to access um, other members of their team? And for example, medication or in our practice, we we sometimes work with a dietitian as well. We we also work with a personal trainer, who, and and take more of a holistic approach. That uh, that wellness is a mind body connection, right? And right. that focusing on any just the mind or just the body is makes zero sense, right? And so you you want to go. You want to meet with several people. You want to interview them. You want to vet them and see how they feel and, and ask yourself. Do I feel understood? Did this person get what I'm talking about or did they not, didn't feel like they were even with me on this? Um, and, and of course, oftentimes when people are looking for a clinician, they're in a state of crisis and they are not able to do all of this kind of stuff. But in an ideal world, that's what you want to do is you want to try several different people out and, and ask questions like, what, what's your approach to this? How do you see how I'm going to get better? What do you think my issue is? How would you explain what's going on? And are they willing to provide you education? Are they willing to get in there with you? Or are they just someone who's just going to nod their head (laughs) and and just like never challenge you at all, you know? Um, So it's really important to kind of vet them as much as possible so that you can get the most out of it as well. And then also recognizing that someone may be, who, sorry, Biswant, I think I cut you off. Um, no, I was just, I was just. Yeah, and that you, someone who you saw at one point in your life might not be the right person you need, you need to see at a different point in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That different true. people do different things at different points. And so that's also part of it is, is um, it's okay to work with different people at various points. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to touch base, you know, get back into kind of where we're at today as a society and tap into something mm-hmm. that I think, you know, when I look at it and I observe it, I look at it as a, 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 a 
really large mental health crisis we have in our country surrounding how angry mm. it seems people in society are these days with the increased polarization, whether you're far right or far left. The idea of like, for me, I think a, a sign of strong mental health is an idea of balance. The ability to look at many different perspectives and whether or not you agree with that perspective or not, have the balance to be able to embrace and engage in that conversation. And it seems like not in, in the same sense with media, with everything, mm -hmm. we're, we're facing kind of this reaffirmation of polarization mm. that I think is a is a symptom of a lot of untreated mental health. That's what really drives people to be this extremely angry and this have this much disdain for people who just don't think the same way that they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it seems like that problem's getting worse. What are what are your kind of insights on that when you observe it? If you turn do you happen to turn on a TV and you turn on Fox News and you see Tucker Carlson stoking the flames of anger. Same thing if you turn on MSNBC, stoking the flames of anger versus the idea of having a balanced conversation. It's almost like we're being driven into a mental health crisis. Yeah, I agree 100%, right? Because the, the, the space gets collapsed and there's no room for complexity, right? There's no room for nuance. There's no room for... Um, dialogue or back and forth and um, instead everything and I'm going to use a psychological term here everything and everyone gets split someone is either all bad or they're all good right people get idealized or they get devalued yeah and and those are um, psycho like constructs of mind that people utilize um, almost like heuristics one could say as a way to make sense and meaning in the world um, and if you're someone who's already vulnerable and you don't have a sense of belonging and then someone comes along and tells you you're a part of my group, you're with us, um, you can be with us, I, I think it just like really taps into people's vulnerabilities, right? Mm -hmm. um, do, do I think that it's necessarily, I, th I think it's exacerbated by our current media environment. But I think it's kind of always been there in yeah. some ways, right? It just looked different at various points in time. Um, yeah. Because, you know, this country's complicated with really problematic history. And I think this is a big historical experience that's happening that's like a, I mean, I'm not a sociologist or a historian by training. Yeah. Obviously. I'm just like telling you what I think. But um, I yeah, I don't know. What do you all think? It's it feels very, very. Um, it's like a it's like a big platform. Everyone's got a platform, right? Yeah, it, it feels like you know the the phrase "chickens coming home to roost." I think um, that is what we're seeing in America, right? So much untreated, um, ignored. So many things ignored. So many mm -hmm. things untreated. So many real conversations not being had. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where we just are at a point now where, you know, there, there really isn't, I don't, I, unless it's a handful of people that are, that are, I have decided I'm close to, I don't feel like there's much valuable engagement and growth. Growth happens through interacting with people who are not the same as you. That's right. 
and it doesn't seem like it seems like as a culture there was a fade point that we're moving more toward that mm -hmm. and it feels more and more like we're moving further and further away from that at least from a feeling perspective mm. um when you see it from a mass market perspective those are my that's kind of how i feel mm -hmm. um this is this is chickens coming to home to roost for america just ignoring or sweeping problems under the rug mm -hmm. not forcing people to have uncomfortable com conversations and grow as human beings it, mm -hmm. it, not a culture that forces that no matter and now with social media you have a platform in which you don't have anyone that you're accountable to either per se. So you can come out and say unhealthy things mm -hmm. without facing the consequences of, of, of dealing with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, because we just have left this era of, you know, where people are essentially using platform to try and impose their perspective of how the world should be on each other. And that was your kind of cancel culture era. It's had its ramifications in media in all directions. Um, and I think at the same time, this prevalence of media has also brought a lot of people together who are not trying to argue or be frustrated. Mm -hmm. Like when, when I think of our podcast community, it's people who genuinely want to listen to these conversations and expand their mind, expand their empathy, right? And yeah. empathy is, you know, the highest, highest spiritual value. It's the connection between all of us and understanding that we're all a part of the same thing mm -hmm. is, is the thought that moves us forward. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at um, when you look at mental health and and specifically, I'm curious about the power of belief. Um, the simplest example is placebo theory, but you can go a lot deeper than that. Um, when people have their mind and their beliefs that oriented a certain way, they usually they 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 get the seeds that they plant. Um, when you look at the values in society and the dialogue around mental health, one of one perspective I've always felt. And, you know, again, it's a personal perspective, but I've always felt that identifying as somebody with a mental health condition publicly mm -hmm. is a way of creating permanence out of a situation that doesn't need to be permanent. It's just one step in the evolution. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, um, I guess, two questions. One, how do you view the power of belief and the power of establishing your own mm -hmm. identity in that context um, in its implication in actual treatment? Yeah, I I really like what you just said that there's there's so many pieces of, of kind of thinking about it. Um, yeah, I think if, if we're going to be a little sophisticated about it, like a diagnosis is just a snapshot of a person at a point in time, right? right? In an ideal um, way, we w you can look at anybody at any time and give them any diagnosis you think would fit, but that doesn't mean a year later they're going to meet whatever criteria yeah. is required. Um, so yeah, I, I believe that. I think developmentally, if we think more developmental rather than um, in, 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 in some sort of like concrete, this is, this is what it is and this stays with you forever, but rather thinking about this is what has happened to me, this is what I've been through, this is what I've learned, this is what I've grown, this is who I am spiritually, this is who I am politically, mentally, psychologically, um, education-wise. And I mean, it, it, in the sense that it has, we have to be evolving and, and growing, and especially for people who care about that, um, care about growing and evolving, then we're not going to look the same month to month, year to year. Um, and, and I think not enough people are doing that. 
right? Mm-hmm. Exactly what you were just pointing out. Um, and yeah, and I, I also think at the same time, there's something very meaningful about being able to label what's happening and say, okay, I know what this is. And so now maybe it can help me figure out what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Because other people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time at the same time. Um, other people have gone through this and, and have ideas about what could be helpful. Um, find support. Build, right. yep. Figure out who's going to be on your side. Figure out who's safe for you and to work through that. Um, and I think like that that's exactly what's not happening at, at a more social level, right? Is enough focus or uh, on what is going on with you and, and thinking about things, you know, people kind of just either look at it as, as like, they're so zoomed out that they can't see any of the details or they're so zoomed in, they can't see the bigger picture, right? Again, back to yeah. people, it's that capacity to have balance, to be flexible in your thinking that I think is is a sign of mental health, of, of vibrant mental health, right? Something else you all, if I could go, if I could, yeah. talk for a second more that I really liked what you said is, is this idea of um, empathy as a sign of um, on so many levels of someone who has um, taken the time to um, think deeply, right? About what does it mean to be in that other person's life? Well, how, how do they see the world? What have they been through? Um, and that, and I'll add like a, a kind of, clinical term that's a little bit more than empathy. It's this idea that we call mentalization. Hmm. That, um, you know, empathy is, I, I can imagine what it's like to be that other person and I um, am able to, to kind of tap into my feelings about that, right? Hmm. Mentalization is, I can imagine what it's like to be that other person and what it must feel like. And so I understand why they are making the choices that they are making. They might not make sense to me, but I have a theory of mind about why that other person might be doing what they're doing. That's like, that's a higher, that's yet another, a little bit more than just empathy. When people are able to do that, then, you know, you know that they're in a place where they're, that they have flexibility in their thinking, right? They're not just stuck in one yes. place. It's really interesting just because you see this pattern, kind of exactly what you're talking about. There's the, the, psychological theory of how we recreate our traumas spiritually you could say you're living the same karmic experience over till you resolve that karma but essentially when i see people you know on twitter arguing about the same things every single day people being upset at dave Chappelle literally every time he does a stand upset because he makes the same jokes he's always made you know what i mean and choosing to re-enter that that space of pain for themselves mm-hmm. it's interesting because it shows that a lot of our society is in that in that phase where they're recognizing and speaking out against the things that, you know, are causing them pain. But at the same time, they keep recreating the experience for themselves, whether it's tuning into the news network they don't like, or whether it's going on Twitter and following the people that make them upset, they recreate (laughs) it because they don't really realize how to heal that part of themselves. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like a really interesting thing to watch across society right now because see it in every single aspect. I mean, even in sports, like all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that you said that. Freud called it the repetition compulsion, right? Yeah. And that we repeat 
and we repeat. And um, trauma theorists say we do that as a way in which to um, make sense of what happened. And we're not able to get there yet. And so we just keep like, maybe if I do it again, I'll get a different outcome than what happened to me. Or maybe if I do go through it again, I can master this experience and it's no longer um, traumatizing to me. And in fact, I can have a different outcome. I can actually kind of inhabit my own agency and have a different outcome. I mean, like why, why do people do it? And other people are just like, um, thoughtlessly just you know redoing the same thing over and over again and not able to get out of that cycle yeah that makes sense i wanted to circle back um real quick on the idea of empathy and what you guys were saying about it because i kind of have a different kind of question about it because you also find the flip you know some of the most empathetic people um the most giving people are dealing with the most trauma internally. You know, the famous example is Robin Williams. Nobody ever on the outside thought that this guy was dealing with as much trauma internally because he was just such a nice human being. Mm. But he, people often say that this is this is a difficult world for good people <laughs> to inhabit. Mm -hmm. uh, that's 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 kind of my thought on you know what Partha was saying. There's also this flip to the idea of the most empathetic people having the most to deal with in this based on the, the society we live in. Um, and then the second question I had, I know we're, we're running short on time was also the, the increase um, from a medical standpoint in, in both like the entrepreneurial spaces, um, the growth of like the use of psychedelics um, mm. <laughs> to optimize, both optimize, you yeah. know, performance, but also mm -hmm. as kind of this, way to treat people are microdosing. It's like the taboo around that is going away. Just trying to gauge your thoughts on that, um, that overall, that whole culture, how that's viewed from, from your field, mm -hmm. field's perspective. Oh, wow. Those are like super big questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I, we have to ask you, we have to ask you the tough ones as we, oh, ah, that's ones. so tough. Cause I, I, so I'll be honest with you. I feel like my position around, um, psychedelics and even marijuana is evolving, um, because it's legal now. So, you know, it's, it's, and, and I just, I don't know if I have a, an answer, right. Yeah. Because things are changing, right. And things are and cultures have used natural substances for a long time within the context of, of spiritual traditions or whatever. Um, and I, I just, I, I used to be a, a person who, I think because I just saw so many negative consequences of people having psychotic breaks and being in, in a, working in, in different places where I saw like the worst things that could happen. So yeah. I was kind of like, eh, no, because... Not everyone knows how to be responsible with this stuff. Or people who we think are using it recreationally are not. They're yeah. often using it to self-medicate in different ways. So, yeah. Um, and the question about Robin Williams and empathy. Uh, yeah. I, I don't even know where to start with that one, V. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I say, I call that trauma. I call yeah. that a trauma response. Yeah. Yeah. That there's pain, but you can't put it into words. And so you 
acted out in some way, right? Yeah. Whatever your version of acting it out is. For some people, it's being so busy. For some people, it's shutting down. For other people, it's trying to control something and make sense of it. You know, we all we all cope in not great ways at times. Yeah, yeah. A lot of comedians tend to say that the common thread is that they all are very depressed inside. Yeah, it's a, right. An industry trope. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention uh, before before we let you go here, um, this concept is an Indian concept, yoga concept of samadhi. Um, mm-hmm. It's a divine, blissful experience. It's a state mm-hmm. you enter through meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find it interesting because here in the States, that's what, you know, microdosing or any of these, any of these tools, that's what people are really reaching for is that divine connection through a substance. And at the same time, you look at Indian culture and a lot of Eastern culture, and mm-hmm. this is well documented and it's so casual that you could, you know, it's, what'd you do this weekend? I watched a movie. What'd you do? Oh, I had a divine experience and I saw this and it's like, Oh, great. Like that's mm-hmm. a big part of a big part of Indian culture. Like it's a, it's a monotheistic religion, but the reason there's so many gods is because there's so many experiences people had where they saw manifestations of, of God. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I just find it really interesting that in this country we are so closed off to the idea of the divine and everything, yet we use a substance to try and get to the divine and everything, <laughs> yeah. which is already there. It, it seems like a total loop built around this, you know, kind of pharmacology-driven attitude that we have to, you know, mm-hmm. take care of ourselves. Well said. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. And I wish we had more time and we could talk more about kind of that Hindu worldview and, and that that way of understanding the human experience as not just this life, but yeah. something that connects you over um, time and space, right? Yeah, it looks that, like we'll have to do a part two on this, but as <laughs> a profession would say, Dr. V, it looks like our time is up. Our time is up. Thank right. you both for having me. This was really wonderful to talk with people who are like thinking about this stuff and <laughs> want to engage. It's really refreshing. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for coming on. This was amazing. And to our listeners, this is more reason to uh, to stay tuned for the next episode where we get to go deeper down this. Um, is there anywhere you want people to follow you or you know check you out on social or anything you kind of want to give us a call to action? Uh, I don't have social media, so no. <laughs> oh. um, but you could always find me on my Psychology Today page or on, or on our practice website. Yeah. Fantastic. Very mentally healthy of you. (laughs) She's like, I don't understand your problems. (laughs) Show the Pilot Boy some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Hey, this is Partha. Not only am I a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. I started Lasso to help people improve their movement on a daily basis. We design and create compression apparel that enables you to move confidently, recover safely, and ultimately be the best version of yourself. We use a patented compression technology that activates key ligaments and tendons to help you improve your proprioception, coordination, and balance on a daily basis. Lasso socks were recently ranked number one by Men's Health because of how much they improve how your body works and the overall comfort, softness, and feel of the product. We're very proud of the Lasso socks, so check them out on our website at lassogear.com or at Lasso Gear.
Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast. This is News and Notes, episode 136. We are here today to talk about the NBA. We're talking about DNA testing and BlackRock's acquisition of Ancestry.com. And uh, we're going to talk about a few other hot topics. So uh, stay stay tuned. Put your trade tables up. Get your seatbelts on. We're about to take off. All right. Let's get into this thing, V. Yeah, let's go. Let's let's start with your favorite your favorite topic, which we texted a little bit back and forth on um, DNA, dude. So this was uh, this is a headline I actually saw on Twitter, and it happened a couple weeks ago, and I was surprised that I missed the coverage of it. But BlackRock, the private equity fund, has acquired Ancestry dot com for uh, over four billion dollars. And Ancestry.com um, is valuable for you know one reason and one reason only is that their data is an entire record of genealogy that we have all opted into over the last you know however many years you know they've been saying trace your ancestry trace your ancestry take your DNA test do this do that and they bought a DNA testing company a few years back and so they acquired all the all the data from the DNA testing company of everyone who's ever taken a test from, and I, I can't remember the company off the top of my head, but they have this entire pool of essentially population DNA data. And now they're able to take that data, map it to everybody's ancestry. And I think there's, there's value there in a couple ways. One, it creates a data pool that you can use AI to run through so that you could predict the DNA of the people you don't have, which is you know quite doable with this much information. Um, and you can figure out how everybody's connected familiarly. Um, but two, I think it's really interesting just because it it moves forward in this kind of corporate acquisition of individual data. We talk so much about user data and we're putting Facebook in front of Congress. We're putting, you know, all the so- Google in front of Congress, all the social media apps in these situations um, there's the hubbub about TikTok being Chinese owned and pulling all of our data from all the posts. And yet our individual genetic code, which may be the most valuable thing that we have as individuals because it dictates who we are, is now a part of you know a corporation. And it's it's something that didn't really get talked about. It's not really being talked about by the government. It's these people are not being put in front of Congress. And I, I think it's concerning at the very least. Definitely is concerning. And, you know, when you talk about conspiracy theories, like it, it always kind of rubbed me a little bit weird, um, the whole DNA testing and and the fact that you submitted a sample. I was like, what is happening with this information? Because this is about more than, you know, the, the $99 DNA test. I'm not sure if Ancestry.com um, is part of a is a public company, but I do know uh, 23andMe recently has entered um, the stock market uh, as a publicly traded company as well. And it just seems like, you know, 
like a lot of things in society, when you talk about conspiracies, something that's masked as something positive and good, there are oftentimes is like a dark kind of underlying uh, purpose to it. And I'm not saying that that's the case with, with these DNA testing um, companies, but it just begs the question, especially when you have such a profit-driven motive. Um, and as you said, um, with the BlackRock situation, um, we are now seeing some of that monetization happening and what it means. Um, you know, you, you, it is important, you know, data privacy, you know, is, is one of those things that's, you know, big topic. But specifically in this, when you give your DNA to somebody, that literally is giving up all of your privacy. Everything about you is now in a lab somewhere, in a database somewhere, and you have no control over what um, what they can and can't do with it, um, no matter what they tell you on the surface they're doing with your data. And that's also the overarching issue with data privacy in general, with cell phone companies, with everybody, is what exactly are you doing with my data? What obligation do you have to me as a consumer, as a person who you're monetizing my data off of from? And then why am I not getting a piece of this pie? Because you're using me to make money. So there's all these kind of questions, not to mention the potential, you know, like you said, some of the potential dangerous ramifications, which, you know, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole of Big Brother and the evil empire and evil government, but it begs the question, like, if these things aren't being regulated in a common sense way that you say, why are they not being regulated? It makes you ask the question, what's really going on here? Yeah. BlackRock is a group that has ties to, you know, a lot of folks funding political campaigns, a lot of folks involved in influencing the government. Um, BlackRock's also acquiring all the single family homes. They're buying up a lot of farmland, as is Bill Gates. And you see these trends of, you know, these massive finance corporations buying a ton of assets and a ton of data on individuals. And, you know, the, the thing that always stands out to me, governments, like I remember when you were growing up, they're like, the government is, you know, 10 to 30 years ahead in technology of yeah. what we have now, right? So it just begs the question, like, we can already clone animals. Like, in the private sector, they're doing lab-generated meat now. So you don't have to kill animals to be able to eat meat. So what happens when your DNA is in the hands of people who have the tools to do animal cloning? Are they experimenting with human DNA behind the scenes to see if they can create humans with the samples that they receive or with some of the information they have? You know, And it's, it's scary at the very least because you also think, well, what's going to happen with um, you know, wars in the future? Are they going to pull soldiers from the population or are they going to make a bunch of copies of a few people? You know what I mean? And just send them out into the battlefield or send them out to do these missions. And I don't know. I think I think it's the dawn of an era where we have so much power that it just takes a little bit of uh, poor consciences, conscientiousness to use it a very, very wrong way. And it can be done with positive intentions just as easily as it can be done with negative intentions. Somebody could be trying to save lives and could end up creating a technology that could be utilized by somebody who is looking to cement their power or stay in power, you know, anywhere in the world, not just in the US. And and that to me is like where where this stuff gets a little bit scary and nerve wracking. And, you know, the DNA testing wave, like 
like you mentioned, it was never one I got into, partially because I think you have privilege in being Indian and that your ancestry goes to like one town. Yeah. (laughs) You can go back, you meet everybody. They're all, they all live in the same neighborhood. So there was no need because we already knew that. But I know people who didn't know their ancestry and a lot of the, um, a lot of the push, uh, if, if folks do remember, uh, a lot of the push with the DNA testing companies, they were trying to get more African-Americans to submit their DNA samples. Yep. And that was a really, really big initiative. And the question I always had back then, which I still have now, is why are, we, why are you pushing so hard to get certain communities to do this when you know, it's primarily been utilized by people of European descent trying to get an understanding of what parts of Europe their families are from? So be it. But when you start to target communities and push them to say, hey, like, you should get your DNA done, you should get your ancestry done. Why? You know what I mean? What it's it's such a it's such a gross thought. Like even that idea is so gross because this is specifically within the African American community in, in the United States, you work so hard to strip these people of their entire ancestry. And then you come back and say, you know, hey, we're here to fix and put the band-aid on the problem. We're gonna allow you to find out where you're from even though you no longer have that connectivity to your culture or your ancestry anymore, how much does it actually help you to know, right? It's this weird kind of manipulation of, of, of humankind, which is, you know that this is a sore spot. You know this is an area in which people are hurting. And you want to, you give them the answers, but the answers aren't in for some altruistic reason. They are for usually an illicit or self-serving reason. Um, and, and, and that's why specifically with the DNA in that community, it, it, it is, there are so many questions and so many, so much, so many like, you know, stares and what's really going on here and why it's not being embraced is because is this just another trick, you know, and, and these things are, are well documented on, on, on the things that have been done in the past. Yeah. You know, my prediction is that DNA will be more important than your social security number, or any sort of type of identification you have in the future, because it'll be the only way to prove that you're you, especially in a future where you can change genders, you can change, you, you'll be able to change skin types, looks, anything, you know, very, very rapidly with the types of technologies we're creating. And without DNA tracking, you can't actually identify who is who. So there's the database side of it, but then on the flip, there's a documentary out on Netflix right now called Our Father, and it's about a, um, a doctor in Indianapolis who there's like 30 kids who the parents went into the doctor because they were having trouble conceiving. He took a sample and then swapped all the semen to his. And so yep. he's the true father, and a lot of these parents didn't even know. And you think about, okay, if you go in for gene therapy, whose genes are getting put in your body? Is it yours? You know, And what is the ramification of that? on your body, on your health, on your life, it, it just takes one bad actor, as we saw in the case in that, in that doc, to dramatically affect uh, now 30 different families, roughly, in that area. And I, I just, you know, I think it's dangerous, like, at, at the very root, and I think we all need to be thinking about it. Yeah, it definitely is dangerous, and it's a it's a subject matter we can probably dive deeper into in a later episode, but, you know, 
it's just an unfortunate thing to have to worry about so many things as human beings in society and as opposed to just living your life when there are so many people and so many systems and, and, and so many businesses and so many people who are looking to exploit um, what, who you are and what you are to them, which is nothing more than an opportunity to profit or gain power. Um, it's just a shitty situation. It's, it's, it's existed through the, <laughs> throughout time. Um, and, and now it's just a little bit more advanced and a little bit more scary um, than it's ever been before. So definitely be cautious, be wary. But at the end of the day, I will say, you know, with that said, it is also important to understand and have a filter of not getting into this this concern all the time about, you know, what's happening, what's going on, that it prevents you from living a happy and healthy life. Because at the end of the day, what's most important is what are you doing day to day? What are you doing? What are you in control of? There's always going to be systems of power. There are always going to be people who are trying to exploit you and trying to exploit society. But at the end of the day, there are also people who still live out a happy and healthy life despite all of those attempts. And I think the goal for society and for people is to try to figure out how you can be that version of yourself so that these things don't drive you um, as crazy as they can because they really can. Yeah. Um, it's a dangerous world we live in. 100%. Um, now moving to uh, lighter topics, let's get into the NBA playoffs. We are now in the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. We heard the predictions last week from Andrew Bogut, Warriors in six, and I think he said Celtics in six. Uh, Warriors are up 3-0, so we may see the Warriors in four. This has been a series that I think just demonstrated the excellence of Golden State. Uh, incredible coaching. Steve Kerr was out for a few games. We saw the impact he makes on the Warriors' chemistry, their energy, um, and their ability to win. And the other thing that stood out to me is Draymond Green. Um, I think he's a very loudmouth guy, and so he does get a lot of attention. Uh, but his playmaking ability specifically and his ability to bring energy to the court, drive the offense, and keep the young guys energized, I think perfectly complements Steph and Clay because it allows them to just focus on their game and shooting and distributing without having to worry about morale or energy on the court and those other elements of leadership. And I think he's really, really proving his value right now. Yeah, and I want to expand that to Andrew Wiggins as well, who's a guy who's dealt with a lot of adversity. Um, but he's filling that role that Andre Iguodala filled for um, the Warriors for many years in a more advanced kind of way. Um, his energy on the defensive end, taking on the responsibility of being the primary defender on Luka Doncic. He is the MVP of this series. Um, the Warriors will admit that. Draymond, we have a history of being of, of knowing his role. Um, and it's interesting because at the start of the season when I said the Warriors were going to win a championship this year, people were like, what do you mean? You know, Clay's her. I was like, look at how they've built their team. And it's important to understand the idea of, of people knowing their roles um, and building very clear demarcation in roles. We've had a, 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 a generation in the NBA of just – Let's put together as many stars as possible that are really that we know are really really good, versus kind of the approach that the Warriors or even when you see the Mavericks now take, which is yeah we're we're going to develop our stars, but we're going to make sure the chemistry is right. Um, that's why 
They got rid of Mark Jackson despite being in the second round. That's why they made the changes in their roster and rebuilt their roster the way they have is the idea that it's important for everybody to know what their responsibility is. If you don't have that understanding, it creates conv- confusion and overlap. And if you look at the the Warriors, when you even look at their starting five, when you've got Steph, Clay, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, um, and I'm not sure, is it is it Looney who's been starting? Um, and even Kevon Looney, who's also been a great player. Everybody does a, has a job to do, and everybody does that job, and no one is jealous of anybody else's job, and nobody wants anybody else's job. Yeah. Uh, and that's just that's a fantastic way to build an organization and a culture, and that's why they're about to sweep the Mavericks, and that's why they've been the most successful organization in the NBA over the last decade. It's amazing when you see an organization where everyone who goes there is all of a sudden better. Yeah. The Warriors are that. Yeah. In every way. Uh, on the flip of that series, uh, the Mavs have just been a demonstration of Luka's greatness every single game. Uh, this guy is a once-in-a-generation talent. I'm so excited to see him grow. Um, I think Dinwiddie is actually a really good pairing there for him. He helps a lot off ball, and they definitely need to add a couple pieces. That's what this series is showing. But yeah, built team. Well, they're they Dallas is wasn't supposed to be here. Yeah. So um, they will they will grow from this. You know, in LeBron's first finals, they got they got swept. Um, as well, so it's a uh, it's it's a challenge getting to the mountaintop in the NBA, especially when you're playing a team as good as Golden State. You know, it's just all you can do is you know clap your hands because they deserve it. And I think you're seeing that from Jason Kidd, and you're seeing that from Luka Doncic. It's an acknowledgement that hey, you know, we're we're a little early here and we're going to take the lessons and we're going to grow and we're going to get better. And hopefully when the time comes, you know, Luca will get his opportunity um, to win a championship as well. Yeah. Uh, It's just not happening this year. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to your point, it was Phoenix that was supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It was was supposed to, supposed to do, do, you know, a better job than the Warriors this season and they didn't put it together. And so, you know, shout out to the Mavs for overachieving in this way. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, we have the Celtics Heat series, which has been a weird series to watch. Not super entertaining from a game to game standpoint, as we've just seen the most absurd blowouts each direction. Um, and just like not a lot of shots being made in general, uh, you know, on one night or the other by other teams, some nights, both teams. Um, I just I just don't know if these teams are just, you know, off right now. But whatever the case, I am concerned about the winner of that series and how they're going to have to deal with Golden State. I just I don't see them being able to measure up. I mean, some of this some of this seems to be related to the injury concerns that both teams are facing, mm-hmm. uh, both Boston and Miami. Um, you know, they're just they're 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 challenged, but it just doesn't seem um, like night to night. Um, that the energy, it's like when one team's energy is there, the other one isn't. And when the other team's is there, the others isn't. And it's just, it's disappointing to watch because as I tuned in uh, to the series here um, at my hotel last night, there's a guy, he's like, like, you rooting for the Heat or the Celtics? And he was like, 
I'm just rooting for an actual competitive game here. We haven't seen one yet. And that's kind of telling here. We're, we're talking about the Eastern Conference Finals. And it kind of sucks for the game of basketball um, that we're not seeing more a more competitive series. Even though Golden State has, has been in control of that other series, it has seen much, and in 3-0 series, seen much more competitive than this 2-2 series um, that we're watching on the other side. And that's that's just disappointing. And um, that may be saying what's going to be happening in the finals here uh, may be a repeat of what's happening in the Western Conference finals. Yeah, and I think we can we can all agree Memphis is a lot better team than how, um, how we're seeing a lot of these teams compete at this stage of the playoffs. Um, they really hung in there with Golden State. I was really impressed to see the intensity and every single game was down to, down to the last few shots. It felt like, and it, as the playoffs have progressed, obviously there's physicality, there's injuries. So it's hard to bring that same intensity, but you would think, especially the heat and the Celtics, both teams with great cultures around that aspect, both teams that like to play very physical. You'll see, you know, last night the heat starters got benched after the first quarter. Cause they put up, I think one point the whole quarter, which is, actually absurd I, I don't think i've ever seen that a basket is worth two points by the way so yeah i, I just one point is you have to try to do that it's like getting a safety only in a quarter in yeah. football you know what i mean yeah i i really truly think with the history i truly think the heat's issues are related to the the, the confounding injuries that they're dealing with even guys that are playing are playing hurt yeah um it's a challenge yeah, because you'll never you never have had to question the Heat's um, desire to win, right? That's why they've overachieved um, as much as they have in the last few years. There's something going on there now with Boston. I think you can ask those questions because of their history of being an inconsistent uh, team, energy-wise, throughout the past few years. So those questions loom much larger on the Boston side. I think on the Miami side. I would I would be more comfortable attaching it purely to the injury challenges, specifically with Hero and Butler. Like those are two huge pieces, um, and and Lowry has been playing hurt pretty much the entire series. The only healthy kind of star player that they have is Bam Adebayo, and even he's had some injuries. So it's like it's this part of the season. Um, let's see who wins. I really want Miami to win the series. Um, just because I, I, I really, the only team I would love to see Boston break through, but I'm rooting for Miami to, to pull this out for the culture. <laughs> I'm on the same side, too. Like, I love Miami. I've always been a fan since, you know, early D-Wade era. Uh, I just think they're an amazing franchise. They're, they play great basketball, and their defensive intensity is beautiful when they have it going. Yeah. Uh, so that's what really gets me fired up about them, especially in those fourth quarter games you see. When they are healthy, when they are tapped in, you see Jimmy Butler do things, create steals, create opportunities, and everyone else follows that lead. And it's just it's amazing to watch somebody in the fourth just go on these 10-0, 15-0 runs and just put a game away um, just out of sheer willpower and you know getting the opponent's head to an extent. Yeah. Uh, Boston is interesting because we saw um, two games ago, game three, Jason Tatum, who's been brilliant this whole playoffs, have like a very lackluster game fall down, seemed like he got hurt, went away, came back. Even the announcers were like, man, the water in the locker room must be magical because he laid on the floor for an entire possession, walked away, came back a minute later, came back in the game. 
um, you can see the mental fatigue of a really tough physical series starting to affect Boston Celtics. And regardless of what happens in the East, it definitely seems like both of these teams are not going to be mentally ready for the finals. 100%. Maybe Jason Tatum was doing his best Paul Pierce impersonation. I don't know. <laughs> it's in the culture in Boston. Anytime you're in a finals, Eastern Conference finals, you have to you have to do something dramatic. I don't know, but you are right. Um, I am not. I'm not. It's unfortunate that this uh, this Mavericks uh, Warrior series is likely over because we are going to be stuck watching probably three more games of lackluster basketball. But hopefully, and then a finals of a team getting stomped by Golden State, which is just not fun to watch. Yeah. Hopefully that's not what we see, but it's been a good NBA season regardless. Um, let's 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 see how it plays out. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we're at the end of our end of our episode here. Um, stay tuned next week, and I guess we'll have our finals competitors chosen by then. Definitely. As always, be you. Stay moving, and you as fly. Our boys out. Our boys, we get on